Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be Mike Biedenbaugh, who is Executive Director of Preservation South Carolina. That's the new name for the nonprofit statewide organization long known as the Palmetto Trust for Historic Preservation. Today's interview was recorded prior to the changing of the organization's name. Mike, welcome back to the Journal. Thank you, Walter. It's wonderful being here. Let's talk a little bit about the Palmetto Trust because you know, folks know about Historic Charleston, Historic Columbia, their local organizations, but the Palmetto Trust is a statewide organization. Palmetto Trust is a statewide organization. It was formed in 1990, of which you were part of the committee of helping to pull it together in in a response to the fact that that the areas outside the Tidewater region of Charleston and Beaufort, and even outside the urban areas like Columbia, there was no preservation advocacy going on. And so this organization was formed for the purposes of trying to engage in the rural areas and the smaller towns around the state to ensure that there were ways to save the historic buildings that were being lost. And also act as partner in relationship with the colleagues in Charleston and in Columbia and and try to build a a statewide um, uh, culture of preservation and how important it is. 1990 was... uh a while back, but yes, it seems it to me seems to me that one of the rationales was our neighboring states, particularly North Carolina, had a statewide historic preservation. That's right. That's right. And there's a lot of there's there's a lot of statewides around. Um, a, a lot of them aren't that large because you know preservation is a local issue. But North Carolina has the fortunate circumstance of uh, having one of the best and strongest statewide organizations in the country. In fact, this last week, uh, I was with Myrick Howard, who was the director, and he's been the director for 40 years. And he helped engineer the whole revolving fund system. Their whole uh, way of doing things is about utilizing real estate. Uh, Houses that are beautiful need to be put back in the economy. And, and to assume everything can be a house museum is just impossible. So we have to put them back in working as as economic entities within the communities, and North Carolina's done that. I, I know you saw me start to smile because having taught historic preservation more than 30 years ago, it seemed like everybody thought, this is going to be the next Mount Vernon, yeah. you know, or the next Monticello. Well, there are very actually very few historic house museums that are even self-supporting. And it comes from a from a... a a good place of trying to figure out what's best for it. But unfortunately, it comes from a perspective of assuming this old house is only good at being old. And and that's not the case. These old places can be updated, upgraded, still maintain the historic fabric. They can still communicate their story through the historic fabric and the architecture and the story of the place. But they can be used and put in a modern kitchen and bathrooms and be lived in and let private capital restore and maintain them. Now, where we come in is we utilize the, the private market to save the places, but we also have a public protection through our easement system. And since we're a nonprofit, any properties that we handle and take on and put back in private sector will have a public easement that will dictate. It has to be open for tours a certain number of times a year. The people who own them have the responsibility of ensuring the historic fabric is not destroyed. It has to be rehabilitated to standards that ensure the story of the house can be told to the future generation. All right. Now, when, when you mention easements, that sometimes makes people very nervous. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that Octagon House in Lawrence. You and I were talking about that before yes. we went on the air, which I think is a wonderful success story. It, it is. And, and the Octagon House um, is in Lawrence. It was one of our first projects back in the 90s. And uh, we worked with a group called Landmark Development. And they came in, led by the amazing and wonderful Dwayne Anderson, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But uh, Dwayne came in and would see these places and would turn them into apartments or houses or things that could be income producing. And we took the easement on it because there are certain tax incentives and easements. And what that easement does is protect it, yet it can still have its economic use. The other thing about these easements is they're voluntary. One of the misconceptions is that buildings on the National Register dictate 
the National Register dictates to people what they can do with their houses, and they, nothing could be further from the truth. The National Register is just an honorary system. Your name's on a list. And, and actually, one of the other misconceptions is if something's on the National Registry, it can't be destroyed. That's, you know, it, it, unfortunately, over the past 10 years since I've been running this organization with my board, it's um, it's been terribly sad to see all the amazing National Register buildings being torn down. The only protection the registry gives it is federal funds cannot be used. To- right. Anytime federal funding or anytime federal licensing is in place, the state uh, historic preservation office can step in and set up certain mitigating things to, to keep that from from uh, damaging the, the historic fabric of the place. And our state historic preservation officer is Eric Emerson, the director, yes. director yes. of the state. They Ar- do a great job state, down there. State archives. Yes. And we Ar- work in partnership with them on a lot of projects. Okay. Let's 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 go back to to the to the Octagon House because I remember it before it was restored. Let's just describe for our listeners what makes that property so unique. Well, besides the fact that it's it's an octagon. It's yeah. Well, you know, the 1850s, you know, a lot of people tend to look back on that time as kind of fixed with big houses and columns and and the stereotypical southern mansions, but actually it was a, it was it was a time where there was a lot of diverse architecture starting to come in and you see uh one of those experimental forms of housing was uh, the octagonal system, the octagonal house. And and a gentleman with the last name of Fowler put out a book, uh, I forget the exact name, it was it was octagonal house, a a a, a home for um, for the common man or something. And and the the idea is is that the house, the octagonal house creates certain energy within it that makes for a healthy lifestyle. And so it, it was more of a, it wasn't a, a pattern book as much as it was a social commentary on how people should live. And so there were several octagonal houses that was inspired by Fowler. This was one of the the best ones that's intact. It's in Lawrence. And it was actually also what made it interesting. It wasn't wood. It's It's concrete. It's formed concrete. And this thing was built in the 1850s. And in the concrete, they actually had uh, channels for water to help give it a cooling effect, like air conditioning. Are, Magnificent place. Are, are are those pipes still there? Well, they're there, but they're not able to be utilized. Now we have HVAC, and that works even better. But you could tell the attempt to try to um, create a place that was revolutionary. And unfortunately, in the um, in the early '90s, late '80s, it was. Uh, I have a slideshow where I show a picture of it with boarded up windows and broken in doors, and it was a place where drug dealers would meet people. It was it was a terrible, horrible place. How it was neglected, but the fabric and everything was still there. And so we were able to partner with Landmark. We took the easement, and Landmark came in and turned it into apartments. And now you can ride by there, and it's a wonderful place. Octagon House Apartments. Okay, and all right. The exterior was. The floors were, were the floors concrete as well. No, the floors were wood. It had wood joists and struts that tied into the concrete, okay. so it had an exterior concrete wall and then an interior concrete wall, which was like an atrium that went up to a skylight above, with a oh. with a with a stairs going around it. Well, I I just remember in its pre-restoration, and you know, folks were wringing their hands up in large. What are we going to? They knew it was important, mm-hmm. but nobody knew how to make it work until the Palmetto Trust came along. Well, you know, the, the, our role in in all of this is is uh, to try to engage in information gathering in the marketplace to make sure everybody knows all the opportunities available. And unfortunately, in our throwaway society, we tend to disregard things that are old because if it's old and not painted, it must be a reason, and that reason must be nobody wants it. This means we don't want it. And and people tend to go there, and especially when you have um, the incentives in the financial system that incentivizes building new things and, 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 and building new stuff. And there's an excitement in building new things. Our role is to come in and say, wait a minute, here's this. This is something that has value. And uh, we try to bridge that gap between assumptions of what it is and expectations of what it could be. And we try to connect that thread so that the market, the true market, can connect with it and bring value to it. Marketplaces work only when everybody has all the information that is pertinent to the project. And unfortunately, the marketplace and these places are failing 
all the information isn't out there. We're trying to be an information delivery system. Well, you're, you're also talking about rural South Carolina, and it really could be rural Alabama or rural Illinois mm-hmm. or whatever. The small small towns are declining in terms of population. Right. Um, there might have been a local industry, could have been a sawmill, could have been a textile mill. Well, or it just could have been uh, vibrant farms in the community yep. around where the farmers would come in and have a marketplace. And and so that architecture, which at one time they talked about vernacular architecture, mm-hmm. the country architecture, that a, a local carpenter or somebody with some skill could build it, maybe using a design from somebody else, but that's right. it was countryfied. And so some people might not appreciate that. But that's just as much an important part of the history as saving the big fancy houses. There were far more people who lived in these places. You know, looking on your website, the Stribling House, which isn't with us anymore. Right? Yeah. Well, it, it's still there, but the accessibility to it to try to save it is concerning. And, and, and you know, part of this is also the Stribling House that you brought up is a – one of the most unique houses that exists in the state of South Carolina. It is octagonal as well. Okay, it's it's in Westminster, right? It's in Westminster, yes. Okay. It's it's outside of Westminster, between Westminster and Seneca, in a little community called Richmond. And it came out of the imagination of the builder, Mr. Stribling, in the 1870s. And it has this octagonal central hall with this domed interior cupola inside. And then it has these these elongated octagonals stretching out from this central hall, and it has magnificent hand-carved paneling in it and b-board, and it has the, the elements of, of 1880s railroad-induced, mass-produced woodwork mm-hmm. that, that was, you know, the beaded board and that sort of stuff, three-inch wide boards with two beads on it. But it also has this antebellum-looking paneling as wainscoting all around the, the rooms. And it, it's also one of those that's just hard to figure out how to attract folks to it. It's on a very small lot in an area that, that makes it difficult for someone to make an investment. So, you know, we do what we can. We hope there's going to be some new life for that. We've been working on this thing for eight years trying to attract something to it, and hopefully that, that can still happen. But one thing I want to make note is, in the sense of architecture, one of the things that's happened with preservation, uh, thankfully, is that it has moved away from the assumption that it's that preservation is only meant for the magnificent architecture, the unique architecture, but it's really about the magnificence of the stories of the place, of how human beings interacted with that place and what type of social memory creates the significance of why that place is so important because it talks about how its interaction is with the community and the people that that, that were affected by it. Well, I briefly just want to go back to that house in Lawrence, the Octagon House, because Fowler and his... Um, the octagon is gives you good vibes for living in it. Yeah. This is the same time nationally you're talking about graham crackers and all of these health foods and these mm-hmm. electronic devices you can buy that will give you vital vitality and energy and all of that. And for that to come out, this house to in Lawrence, South Carolina, mm-hmm. shows you how interconnected pre-Civil War South Carolina was. Somebody in, in a small town South Carolina was with the much wider world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, the so-called reform world, which would have been a little bit edgy mm-hmm. in South Carolina in those days. That's right. Well, this guy was out of the box, but it was out of that came creativity that this house reflects. And thank goodness now there was a mechanism to save it. And so that was one of the winners. Well, see, I like the story as much as I like the house. Well, that's the part. You see, that's the that's the issue of what I was talking about, about it, how it interconnects with with people. When we were last on, we were talking about the two biggest projects at the time we had worked on, moving the, the Wilkins Mansion, this 800-ton Italianate mansion in Greenville built by uh, William Wilkins. He was one of the wealthiest and one of the most important businessmen inside Greenville at the time and was able to build this magnificent home. And at the same time, we're saving the the dwelling of Miss Frances Jones on the Fusky, who was a teacher, who was someone who helped build a school. This little 800-square-foot vernacular little structure that she lived in, its impact to the Fusky, its way it helps tell the story of the broader community, 
is just as important of, of what the Wilkins House was to Greenville. And so it's about placemaking and about how how um, the human connectivity with these places is what is so important. All right. we, we've been talking a lot about houses, but I know, I know, and again, I'm remembering back to 1990, we were concerned about not just houses, but things like, at that point, tobacco barns were dis- disappearing from the South Carolina landscape. Yes. Rural structures of, of all kinds. Um, I think today, if you go over to the PD, except for Lake City, where they have managed to make adaptive reuses of their tobacco warehouses mm-hmm. and um, the bean factory. That's uh, right. But there are other small towns over in the PD where you've got these huge structures. And what are you going to do with them? Well, it, it's about the built environment, right? I mean, th- these houses were not just isolated homes as if, like we have subdivisions now. You go down the road, there's houses where people live in with nothing else. Outbuildings, the barns, all the systems around okay. th- that 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 help support that house. And, and we are losing so much. I mean, I'm 56 now. And so from the time I was born, uh, the landscape that I grew up in, Prosperity, South Carolina – I knew I was born in a farming community. If I was to go up that same road the seven miles from my home up to Prosperity Now, you wouldn't really know that right now necessarily because all the barns are gone, all the outbuildings are gone. Also, the sharecropper houses that used to support the farms are, are there, gone. Are there still farms? We're trying on our part to have one between my sheep, my goats, and the chickens. Yes, we're trying, <laughs> and the corn that I'm growing now. But there's not large farms that are used as part of a, a primary point of income. It's more hobby and and um, trying to hold on to something more than it is actual. I, I think I think South Carolina is, is turning a point to where there is more opportunity for people to make money and income off of their farms. And I and I'm really enjoyed seeing that because all of that ties into the opportunity of preservation. Preservation is is it, with the Palmetto Trust, it's about architecture. That's our mission. But for that to work, when we go and see a place that's a home with with um with the barns, we need to attract someone who understands how it could be a farm again. All those buildings have to be utilized for something. I was at a place yesterday, and I was so excited to see them investing in the old log barn behind the house where the roof was starting to cave in, and they were fixing it up because they knew it was an important component. The barn was larger than the house that was built in 1850. So it's an important component of that. And um, we can't save all of them, but the ones we can, we're going to do everything we can to try to ensure that story can be told the complexity of these places. I know you do partner with lo- with local groups and um, you're concerned about helping them preserve structures. There, there's a big project up in Spartanburg, at least the concern about a theater up there. Right. Well, one of the, one of the challenges we've had as a statewide is building a statewide community in a state that is still very, very locally oriented in regards to its placemaking in the communities. And so we've always had a statewide revolving fund, but we're, we're now developing a system to where we want to create Palmetto Trust revolving funds that are regionalized. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are going to be developed around iconic structures that we could use to not only save but also build funding mechanisms so we can save other buildings in those regions. So um, you mentioned the theater in the Montgomery building in Spartanburg, which is now under redevelopment, and we are so excited. This place has been empty for almost 20 years, potentially going to be condemned and torn down. Many folks thought it had no other use, and fortunately, a development group came in and with a lot of imagination and a lot of work, we figured they figured out ways to save the building. But adjacent to the building is the theater. The building was built in the mid-1920s. The theater was opened up two years after it was built. In 1927, it started showing its first films. So what we have is we have the theater being the, – the theater is, is part of the building, but it's separate from the big development. So we partner with the developer in the sense that we are taking a lease – own the theater so they could rehabilitate the building and we'll now have plans for working on the theater. And this is the pilot project of the Spartanburg Endangered Places Fund that we've just formed. All right. And the theater built in the 20s is 
fairly elegant inside, is it not? Well, you know, theaters at the time were 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 a way to figure out how to get people out of their houses, and no better way to get people out of houses in 1925 in rural South Carolina and in Spartanburg, but put air conditioning in it. <laughs> so, and plus show the latest entertainment. So most theaters at this time was built uh, as vaudeville theaters and uh, with a movie screen also, so you could have mixed use. Okay. I mean, this place Elvis Presley played. When? In the know? 50s, 56. Elvis. Elvis Presley played there. Hey. So it was mixed use. It has a stage. It had an orchestra pit. It um, it had this wonderful it, – it didn't have all the over-the-top uh, things that you see in bigger cities with all the Egyptian iconography and, and, and this. I mean, you could expect this from very conservative Spartanburg. It's very classical in design. But but magnificent space. Uh, they had a lighting system where the ceiling would glow from different colored lights based on the mood of the movie. It would be part of it. They had a, uh, uh, of course, silent movies. They had organs to to make the sound of of to tie into the film and to create an experience. And it's just a magnificent space that, due to short term trends in the economy, and by night by the mid seventies, it was shuttered up and done as people were moving out to the suburbs to go to the multiplexes outside of Spartanburg. So this is the last theater space left in downtown Spartanburg. This place, um, theaters have such a specialness in the communities they are, and it's because of how the people interacted with it. I mean, think about it. This is the place where so many young boys had their first dates where for the first time they put their arms around their date. I mean, it, it they, you know, they, they walk in with their dates, their parents dropping them off, and they come out holding hands for the first time. And that type of, of interaction is what creates a specialness. And let me tell you, people are so excited about the Montgomery Carolina Theater coming back, potentially. Okay, it was actually called the Carolina Theater. Well, it was Montgomery Theater until 1932, and then it was bought up and then turned to the Carolina Theater. Okay. Mike, we, we earlier talked about the easements. Let's just sort of walk through the various uh, tools that are available through your organization and through cooperation with others, whether you talk about uh, tax incentives, easements, what have you. Just kind of walk us through the litany of, of, of what's available out there. If I've got a property in Peak and, you know, I inherited it, I'm, I'd like to have it saved. And if other than my goodwill, is there any kind of advantage? What advantage can I use if it's, say, built in 1880? Right. Well, there, you know, being eligible for the National Register, there are certain tax credits that are available for the investments you can make into a, a, a home. If it's a business, there are federal and state tax credits available to that. Uh, one of the things we're proudest of is the abandoned buildings tax credit that it was part of the Abandoned Buildings Revitalization Act that we shepherded through the, the House, and it has done a lot and in the state for redevelopment. Now, that's South Carolina law. That is South Carolina only, and it's a South Carolina tax credit. But the Montgomery building that we were mentioning earlier is being done because of the layering of the historic tax credits as well as the Abandoned Buildings Tax Credit. In any building where 66% has been empty for over five years, can apply for that. Okay. Now, the historic credit, does it have to be on the National Register to get historic tax credit? On federal, it does. On the state-owner-occupied home, it just has to be eligible. just has to be determined eligible by the State Historic Preservation Office. But the federal tax credits demand that it is listed on the National Register. Okay. And those credits can be considerable when it comes to investing. It is those credits that were the root cause of why you see all these mills being rehabilitated into apartments, the uh, Palmetto Compress here in Columbia, uh, all the big, large buildings that have been done in in Newberry, uh, Oakland Mill, and the Montgomery Building were done because there had to be a bridge because of the neglect that had happened to the buildings and trying to bring the economy back. And that's where the the public use of tax credits is so important to, to bring that intention back. And they more than pay for themselves once. You know, there's dozens of studies showing how this creates economy and, and uplifts the tax base. Hey, you mentioned Newberry, the poster child for what the opera house in this case, what 
the restoration of one old building can do for a community. Well, it can. Well, one old iconic building like that, especially that that is like the centerpiece that 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 attracts other renovation projects around it. You know, and and it, it's really a formula that works everywhere. You see it when they're building WalMarts, and Walmart allows a developer to to create a space for the Walmart to go, and then all the money's made because it increases the value of all the property around it. Well, these old buildings do the same things in downtown areas, and you see them being the the centerpiece of redevelopment efforts. And so this area in Spartanburg, that's what's seen as this. You know, you have Morgan Square. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but this is several blocks north that has been somewhat neglected by the development that's happened around Morgan Square, the new restaurants and all of that on Main Street. This will start a revitalization there, and that's what we're so excited about, and especially bringing the theater back. Okay. All right, we need to pause now to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and my guest is Mike Biedenbaugh, who is executive director of Preservation South Carolina. That's the new name for the nonprofit statewide organization long known as the Palmetto Trust for Historic Preservation. Today's interview was recorded prior to the changing of the organization's name. Mike, let's let's go back to um, uh, I shouldn't ask you who's your favorite child. Your fa- <laughs> your your favorite success story and you've been associated with the Palmetto Trust for almost since its inception as a board member and then as executive mm-hmm. director. Wow. I would have to say, you know, you, you, you figure out the favorite ones based on the challenges and, and, and the success that was based on that. And I would have to say my two favorite thus far is the Wilkins Mansion in Greenville, where we were able to gather the resources uh, with the help of the community in Greenville to move an 800-ton mansion, the heart, heaviest building ever moved inside the house. It, it was a brick structure. It was it? solid brick with two-foot-thick wall foundational brick things, and we picked it up on a platform and moved it four blocks. And at the same time, my other favorite was the Francis Jones house. Uh, it, 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 to me, it encapsulates everything we're supposed to do. And why the Palmetto Trust was formed was to engage in these places, engage in these things that was seen as impossible to do mm-hmm. and, to, and to try to insert hope, faith, and resources mm-hmm. to make it work. And those two were so far so good. The newest one will be the Montgomery Theater. All right. What's the Wilkins House used for now? Uh, the Wilkins House is a private home. And we have it set up with the easement where he has to have it open at least four times a year. We just had our celebratory event there. Uh, Neil Wilson, who owns it, has created a magnificent place that he welcomes visitors. And uh, it is now a home again. All right. And what about the home on Defusky? Defusky, uh, the way the Defusky project worked, one of the one of the things we had to make sure was the Gullah community and the owners of these houses did not feel like they had to lose their houses for the investment to come in. So instead of coming in and purchasing these houses, we come in and lease them from the owners. And we we attract investment uh, through either grants. It took $150,000 to restore the Francis Jones house. And now we use it as a vacation rental for vacationers who come to the Fusky. Francis Jones House currently is now a long-term rental of folks living there. We have a second house that vacationers are using. That was the second phase of our project there. And it uh, has its sign out front, and everybody that comes, it's on the tour maps now. And it's painted this wonderful indigo blue, uh, whereas four years ago the roof was falling in and you could barely see it underneath the weeds. It's another way we can help the community communicate what makes it so special. And these little vernacular houses, especially like on the Fusky, you know, can help do that. So the Palmetto Trust actually owns that house? The Palmetto Trust has the lease on that house. And in fact, on the Montgomery uh, Theater, we have the lease on the theater. We have a 60-year long-term lease on the theater. But those long-term leases give us room to have economic investment in it so that there's a safe return on that and gives us some control where we can do our job, and in the case of the Francis Jones house, the owners still have access to it. They still own it, and um, once we revolve the money back out, they'll have it back. 
because the lease purpose was just for us to come in and make the investment. Once that investment's returned, we'll walk back out of it. All right. Let's explain what a revolving fund is, or at least how it works with the Palmetto Trust. Revolving fund, and you know, it's kind of a technical term, but basically it is a pool of money designated to be utilized for investment in historic properties in, in our case. That's how we use it. And we call it revolving because the assumption is when we invest the money into them, either through purchase, either through some rehabilitation or stabilization, we then position it for sale. Someone comes in and buys it. And with those funds of where people purchase the home, we then revolve that back into the account. So once that house is gone, the the uh, the goal is to replenish all the money that we expended back. The hope is we could have a little bit of profit so we could build the fund up. And then we use that in other properties and other projects. So in the case of the Francis Jones house, the rental of that house mm-hmm. is what's going back into the- It's going back into the fund so that we can help build up and um, and aim for another house that that uh, we could try to save. And there's several homes on the island that need intervention, and we're speaking with various families now to see which one the next one would be. Okay. Uh, so so one of the things that we've always said since our, our formation in the 90s was a statewide revolving fund. As, as we talked before, South Carolina is a you know, it, it, it is made up of people who see preservation as a local issue. So we're trying something that I think is going to be pretty successful, hopefully, where it engages local folks into the statewide organization, and that is creating regional revolving funds. We want to tie in to the genius of regional leadership, and but use the funds specifically for that area. So where the Wilkins house is, that was the start of, you know, we raised 300 something thousand to move the house, but we've raised some money since then because of the success. And that is going to be the uh, Greenville Endangered Places Fund, where we can try to tie in. We, we have that actually named for two of our past leaders, Bill and Wu Thomason, who tragically died several years ago, that were some of the past presidents and treasurers of the Palmetto Trust, named in their honor, so that it will be ready to that fund would be ready to try to help save other buildings. Uh, Spartanburg would be the Spartanburg Endangered Fund out of Montgomery Building. Uh, we have a fund out of Walterboro, the Colleton County Fund, which is made up with a group of people down there. We're already working on the first project, the Fraser House. The Fraser House, that's in Walterboro? The Fraser House is in Walterboro, and it was one of the first projects we worked on in Walterboro. You know, most of these most of these revolving funds have to revolve one around a group of people willing to be the leadership for our advisory committee there, and we have a great strong group of folks there in Walterboro helping that. And we'll be looking for our other projects after the success of the Fraser House. But the next one that we're most excited about, along with the others, and it's all parallel. It's like when it rains, it pours. Is the PD revolving fund? The PD is one of those regions. Well, just like you said earlier about the tobacco barns, you said the PD. You didn't say Florence County. It, it, the, 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 there's a culture in the PD of the regionalism that's unlike any other part of the state. So because of the projects we've been working there in Society Hill and Florence, out of the success of those, we're going to leverage a new PD revolving fund so that the Palmetto Trust, through a advisory board there in the PD, will be able to target properties that are at risk of being lost and be able to gauge in them, buy them, stabilize them, and get them into the hands of people uh, and attract investment to them. So that's that's the goal there. Well, and I, I know the, the folks in Mullins have been very much interested in heritage tourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a wonderful little tobacco museum there. Um, and when I went over there, it's not just the main street, but the entire surrounding residential neighborhoods it's 1880s. It's turn of the last century South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And the thing that, that, that is so wonderful about there is that sense of community culture. So our, our projects there that have come to us is not only Red Doe Plantation, which uh, is going to be an event space, and we were excited. Oh, okay, now tell us, tell us Red about Doe it. Plantation was built in the 1840s by Vander Gregg, and it's, it's the classic PD raised cottage that has these wonderful six octagonal columns on the front and it has a recessed rain porch okay that's a it, it's interesting they're common they were common in the pd and they were common in the town of prosperity where i grew up for some reason and archives and history the shippo office was wondering why are these all these rain porches in prosperity and the pd 
And so it's it's just one of those little architectural anomalies. But now describe what a rain porch is. I mean, rain porch is where you have the porch is recessed back from the columns. So basically, and it's a very common sense thing. You know, when it rains, it would rot out the edge of the porch. So the porch is brought back. It is really built almost more like a balcony instead of the porch being part of the support system of the uh, of the roof and the cantilevered roof that stretches out over the porch. The roof is out with columns holding it up, and the columns are tied in straight to the ground, and the rail of the porch is back behind the columns. And so Red Doe is, is one of the perfect examples of that. Uh, it, it's a raised cottage, so its porch is actually up on the second level with a long staircase going up. It was used as a, a venue back in the 70s and 80s, a wonderful event venue, and it has been under some hard times the past several years. Thankfully, the local group put a new roof on it and maintained it to make sure it wasn't lost. And we were able to step in and uh, now help move it forward into new ownership uh, and its own sustainability. So we're excited about that. But out of that will come funds so we can help with the rest of the PD and other pl- places uh, like Society Hill, where not only do we have the Coker House, Caleb Coker's house, where James Lyde Coker was born, but also Caleb Coker Store, which was built in 1828, and that wonderful, iconic Coker Rogers Store, we have in the control now to where we're going to try to attract investment to that, which we're really excited about. And, of course, the folks in Bishopville are pretty active as well. Yes, they are. Yeah, well, the same landmark, the landmark who did the Octagon House were the ones responsible to come in and and do the facades and do the buildings and the apartments on the second floor and put retail spaces. That was the same organization, and we were involved in them there as well when they did that. All right. And is that private company still around? That private company is still around. They're not, uh, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Dwayne Anderson, he passed away. And so it's it's it doesn't have the same aggressive energy that Dwayne did in coming into small towns and finding opportunities to save them. They're more a development firm now. After we lost Dwayne, it, it kind of went specifically to development and low-income development, but it's it's all over the southeast. Uh, so they're not doing new projects now. So that's why... Part of our job is also to try to make sure we can connect developers who have never done these type of projects. You know, there's a lot more new projects than old ones, which means there's a lot more developers and banking systems and, and, and capital investors that understand new stuff. It's not that many that understand the old stuff and the systems that need to be in place, the financial systems, the, how to leverage capital to invest in these old places and the and the special care these old places need. So it's not that many of them. I mean, literally, you could count them on two hands of the folks that are in the lead of doing this in the state. And so, so I don't need to take off my socks to count my toes. That's right. No, All right. no, it's 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 few. And these people know what they're doing. Uh, they know how to bring value and leverage capital and look at the long-term investment that they're putting in these places. And uh, so our goal is to work with as many of these as possible and try to connect them to places since we're on the ground. Um, I'm driving all over the state and my Prius. I've got 230,000 miles on it now. And so there's very few roads in the state I haven't been on. And so my job is to find these places that may be suitable for some of these developers to come in, especially the large ones, the large buildings, like what happened with the Montgomery building. All right. Are you are you involved in the city of Columbia and the development of the old state hospital properties? Um, we have We were involved heavily at the beginning of the advocacy to make sure that the historic fabric there would not be lost. Fortunately, uh, Hughes Development, who did come in to do it, uh, we've had a lot of conversations before it started with them, and they have been wonderful at attracting, even though it hadn't been mandated necessarily, but they did a wonderful job of attracting the right tenants into some of these old buildings, and they are being redeveloped. So... We're watching along with Historic Columbia, and so far, so good. We're very excited about that. Historic Columbia has certainly involved from just the operator of Historic House Museums into very much a public advocacy group that has helped encourage the revitalization of a lot of downtown, some rather mundane office buildings on Main Street and stores on Main Street, and 
in the area of um, below assembly. Yeah, you're, see, you're seeing revitalization down there now. Yeah, and Robin and the staff there, John Shearer and all the staff there, has done an incredible job of creating an entity that can make a difference in Columbia through education, through tours, and just uh, through the advocacy, but just managing these wonderful house museums. And the, and the investment they brought into Woodrow Wilson to create uh, this phenomenal museum on, on Reconstruction, one of the only ones in the country. In preservation organizations, this is one of the challenges we have as a statewide because when you're a local organization, if you have good, strong leadership like Columbia does, you have you have a built-in community that already exists that people can can work together on. You know, you know the carpenters, you know the funders. You know, you have to build systems around where the 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 natural culture tends to be. And so that's why as a statewide, we know the importance of creating these regional funds so we can help start creating these community groups that can empower and carry the Palmetto Trust into, you know, the next couple decades from what we've been doing the past couple. Well, you know, once upon a time, there was something called the Regional Council of Governments, Mm -hmm. which I don't think even exists anymore. But each one had a preservation office. One area I haven't heard you talk much about is the Savannah River Valley, where you're talking about, in fact, if there was an upper Savannah River and a lower Savannah River, cargo government, you know, you've right. got Edgefield, mm-hmm. you've got McCormick, you've got Saluda. That's it. And we've, we've, we have done some work in all of those areas that was also along the Heritage Corridor yeah. there. And so there was investment in the Heritage Corridor. And like in Edgefield, they had a visitor center put in and in other areas. There is some big challenges there along that corridor. I mean, you have in the upper areas the, the magnificent little community of Mount Carmel was there. Uh, but, right, describe Mount Carmel because a lot of folks probably hadn't been there. I would recommend anybody that takes a drive, if they want to take a weekend drive anywhere in the state, go in the McCormick County, Edgefield County, McCormick County area and go drive through Mount Carmel, Willington. Um, Mount Carmel is a, is a wonderful old community that still has a lot of its historic fabric still retained. It doesn't have a big downtown, but it has a lot of beautiful houses and a church and an old mill and a few of the stores. And it's just it's just a, a magnificent little place stuck in time. The issue is, how do you connect folks to trying to invest in capital? How do you connect folks to say, okay, it's all right to sell some houses if it means we can sell them and save them? You know, that's the type of discussion in some of these rural communities when folks that's had properties for generations, but maybe not have the resources of wanting to fix them up themselves how can we bridge the gap to say, okay, well, they need to be repaired. If we want this community to look like this and we want to attract tourism to our historic fabric, we need to open up to allow investment from folks who's willing to invest in them. And and that's part of of the dance that, that we need to do and need to communicate. If we want to save them, we got to help attract other investment. Describing getting to Mount Carmel, you have to want to get there. Yeah. Which is which it's, is good. It's, it's off the beat, but it's off the. Well, beaten you know, path. but some of the most beautiful things are off the beaten path, and it actually shows. It, it encourages intention, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, to think about what you're going to do, and to feel the importance of doing it is the first step at involving yourselves in these communities and saving these places. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome, and once we get to that point then actually attract investment isn't that hard. You mentioned a place in, in McCormick County. Edgefield County, at least the town of Edgefield itself, uh, Bettis Ransford and those folks have really done a fabulous job with, with that community. And it always amazed me when the folks moved in to work on the bomb plant in mm-hmm. Aiken, nobody thought about moving to Edgefield, a fabulous property, and then a very short commute to Aiken. Well, that's one of the things that's making Edgefield so exciting now, too, is because of the Turkey Federation and the leadership of all of that is attracting people from all over the country. And now the, the Plantation House Hotel has is has enhanced that where hopefully that will be start a revitalization of it. We're excited about that potential. So 
it's 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 a lot of wonderful things getting ready to happen there, and we look forward to being part of that. Well, if I have a project, again, let's just say I live in Peak or I, I live in Winsboro. Is there, is there a local group I got to go to first? Or? No, you just we we are on you know uh, the, the folks that are on Facebook. We're easy to find there and to get in touch with us, and you can go and see what we're doing, uh, what we're up to, ways to contact us. We can't do it without everybody being involved. Your board is statewide, right? We are statewide, absolutely. We have thirteen board members from Greenville all the way down to the PD and to the Low Country. A lot of great leaders who have carried this organization, and we've got an amazing team that's ready to carry it further. All right, and we will have the link to your website from the journal website. So thank that, you very much. So that folks can get in get in touch, and. You mentioned you've put 200,000 miles on your Prius. <laughs> yeah. And I know part of that is speaking around the state. But again, if if I'm in Mount Carmel and I want somebody to come help jazz up the local community, can you come speak to us and tell us what it's all about? Absolutely. Anybody that, that um, wants to know more about how we can gauge, contact us and, and uh, we'll be there. All right, Mike. Let's go back in time. Yes. How and why did you get involved in historic preservation? You know, Walter, when I started having children, I've always been puzzled by nature versus nurture. You know, mm-hmm. how much are we taught and how much are we, we came into the world with? And historic things is something I came into the world in. I, I One of my first memories is finding the old house that was in the woods behind where I grew up, and that's where I was playing, underneath that house. Okay. Uh, Art, it, you're talking about Newberry County, right? Newberry County, Prosperity. We grew up um, near Blacksbridge, north of Lake Murray, Saluda River, and uh, on a farm that had been in our family since the 1870s. And uh, actually, I now currently reside there still on my grandfather's farm that I'm rejuvenating with my sheep and goats and my sweet wife, Anya, is we're trying to build a place uh, to respect the farm. So, you know, I've always had that sense. I, I, I always had um, understood the importance of place and talking to my grandmother about uh, her life. I always want to know, what was it like when you were a kid? What was prosperity like? Uh, we had our centennial in 1973, so I would ride around on my bike as a 12-year-old in Prosperity with the little history book that my grandmother helped do and looking at the pictures of the houses and what they used to look like versus what they look like now. So I've always felt the importance of it, and it was nurtured by my family. And so it, it, it came as a natural thing, and I, um, you know— I've always understood the importance of place. And and when I talk about place, you know, I was talking about the stories. It, it, it's the difference between, you know, the flesh that houses who we are versus the soul of what makes us who we are. And that's the difference between place and, and um, you know, difference between a house or a home, a town or a community and um, a thing or a place. All right. When did you get hooked up with the Palmetto Trust. Well, in the 90s, I had a marketing company, and I was involved in various things, but uh, I found out about the Palmetto Trust being formed. And I immediately reached out and was fortunate enough to be included in the board in the 90s. And uh, that was that was the first time, and that was, that was a, a wonderful time. And I'm fortunate to, um, when I came back and, and offered myself as director in 2007, I'm fortunate to have bring back some of those folks that was on the board with me as the board leadership now. We have a, a, a lot of history with our board who understands all the quirks and foibles of trying to manage an organization like this in a place where it's it's not a natural entity. You know, it, it has to be underpinned with a lot of work and a lot of communication to show the relevance of it. And so we are doing our best to show the relevance um, in the actions we do and the in the places we save. All right. Mike, I hate to do this, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up signal. 
So any last word for our listeners before we sign off today? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to come and share the story of what we do, but also the story of the places that we save and, and also communicate that there are so many places out there that still have voices to tell, whether they're a little gullah house on the Fusky or a mansion up in Greenville, a sharecropper's house or a 200-year-old log cabin or a slave dwelling. Uh, these places matter. And they matter for who we are. And we're here to do everything we can to bring that value into the community of the state and into the community where you live, where anybody's listening lives. And we look forward to helping. All right. Mike Deedenbaugh, Executive Director of Preservation South Carolina. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was fun having Mike Biedenbaugh back on the show. He's been a part of the state preservation scene now for, wow, more than 20 years. And I particularly enjoyed asking him what was his favorite success story. And, of course, that's like asking someone who's their favorite grandchild. And he paired the Wilkins Mansion in Greenville with the home of Francis Jones, a teacher on Defusky Island, from the mountains to the sea, representing the diversity of South Carolina. And that seems to be what Preservation South Carolina is really all about. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.